Awesome. I love that video so much. I keep that broken pot on my desk in my office. Uh, it's just an awesome reminder of how, of how God does incredible things with broken vessels like us as we hand ourselves, as we hand our heart over to him. Uh, that's the name of the series that we're in right now. It's called Selfless. Uh, if you want the longer form title writ from a book I didn't read, it's called Selfless Living in a Selfie World. It's sort of cheesy, but I think I, think I really, really like it. But, but as we kind of go into today, I, I, I want to, I, I want to, I guess, make, share a word about the series as a whole and then kind of land it in a specific application for this morning. Because the series as a whole, I feel like I need to acknowledge that there is something like, like deeply unsettling about living a selfless kind of life, about, about living a God-centered life in a me-driven, me-centered world. I mean, it's not just like unsettling, I guess. It, it, feels, it feels almost unnatural, right? Because every, every fiber of my depraved little heart wants to live for me, and, and, and every bit of, especially maybe American culture, um, wants us to live a life centered around ourselves. And, and so to live selflessly, to live about someone else or something else, it, it, it cuts across the grain and has this unsettling, unnatural kind of feeling to it. But I want to acknowledge something this morning. I said, you know what else feels unnatural to me? Exercise, right? Like running, walking, biking, whatever your form of exercise is, it feels very, very unnatural to me, okay? It, unnatural, I mean, to a huge, really, extent that I don't want to get out there and do it. You know what else feels unnatural to me? It's like swapping out the cookies for the cauliflower. It doesn't feel right to me. What feels good to me, what feels normal to me is this, is to, is to not just sit, but full extension lay on the couch so that nobody else in my family can sit on the couch. Kristen can back me up on this, right? And I just want to, I want to lay on the couch, put some Netflix on, and binge it all day long while eating those little little round wax donuts, you know, they're not food, they're not edible, but I just want to like reach into the bag and just that, that's what feels in, entirely natural to me. I mean, <laughs> maybe bearing a little bit too much here, but, but that I can do as like second nature. Anything else feels entirely unnatural, but I also know that laying down on the couch for that long, eating those things that aren't actually food, that could and possibly soon will kill me. <laughs> My only hope, my only hope is to do the very, very thing that comes unnaturally to me. In the same way as we're digging through this series and we're hearing about a couple of different ways to live selflessly, you might have found after last week that using your influence to point not just to yourself, but to someone, a cause greater than yourself, it doesn't feel normal. It might not come to you naturally. Stick with it. Because just as we saw from those broken vessels, I think... I think that this could, in fact, save your life. Okay, that's series, a word for the series as a whole this morning to land it a bit more particularly. I want us to look together at this question of, okay, I know that I'm supposed to live selfless, selflessly, but like, how much so, right? Like, where's the line? We're gonna kind of use that image this morning. Where's the line of selfish, and selfless, because I don't know about most of you, but I want to cozy like right up to that line and just be on the good side of it, the selfless side of it. But, but I basically want to just hug that line. I want to know what's the minimum that I have to do in order to act or to be known as somebody who lives selflessly. 
point as an example this morning is, uh, is, is my wife and I have certain, after almost 12 years of marriage, you can clap if you want. I mean, it's a pretty big deal, but I, later, thank you. We've, both of you, appreciate that. Um, we, we've settled into these roles together, right? Or these chores that we have to, to do, get things done around the house. And one of those chores, this isn't like a gender thing. And don't just, it's, we're not going down that road. But, but one of the things that my wife typically does around the house, typically as in like every time, is the vacuuming of the house. Right? And each of you, if you live with someone, you, like, you get the dynamic, you know, there's certain things that he does or she does or they do or whatever it is. There's certain things that you do and that person does to kind of keep the house moving along. And so that also means, that also means that you know what you have to do in order to show that other person that you care, that you love them, and that you're serving them. You have that list because you just take one thing that they normally do and you do that thing around the house in addition to, that's important, your own things. And then you've shown that you can live a selfless life, at least with this one little example. So, true story, my wife was gone. She had the kids with her. They were gone. I was home alone in the house, and I thought, I'm going to take this opportunity to live a selfless life. And so I know one of the things that she does, typically around the house every time, is vacuuming. And so I go to the closet, get out the vacuum, turn it on, push it around for a little while, and put it away. She gets home, and I'm standing there like in the foyer, right, as the kids are running by, and they're being nuts and doing, notice anything? And I could see on her face that she wasn't quite picking it up, so I thought I would offer a little hint and say, I vacuumed, you're right? And she kind of like looks around, uh, okay, um, did, you do, did you do the bedrooms? I must have slipped my mind on that, but like I vacuumed, maybe you didn't hear me, did you do upstairs? did you do downstairs? And I could see I was starting to lose some traction on this selfless living thing. So, so uh, she turns to me and she says, Dirk, when you said that you vacuumed, like what exactly did you vacuum? <laughs> and I turn, I look into the living room and I say, like that, oh, right over there. I did that. And it, it hits me, right, that, that I only did that little patch of vacuuming because I'm in that room more than any other room. And so when she's vacuuming and kind of interrupting whatever it is that I'm doing, it's usually in that room. I never really considered the fact that, that she vacuums in other areas that, that don't disturb what I'm doing when she's vacuuming. And it just hits me, right? Just how, just how selfish I can be when I'm trying to like straddle, to hug that line, cradle that line of selfless versus selfish living. But you laugh at that story. You laugh at me, and that's fine. I'm good with that. But you should know that you do it too, right? We all do it. We all have those things in life where we want to do just the minimum amount in order to be considered a halfway selfless kind of person, because we know that's the way we really ought to live, even if we don't want to do it all the time. When you think about serving or when you think about volunteering, maybe the pantry up the road, great you know, community partner of ours, or, or when you serve around here, isn't it true sometimes in your mind, right? You get excited about teaching kids about Jesus, about creating this welcoming environment or playing music or something to share your gift with the people here. But isn't it also true that sometimes you show up simply because you wonder, like, what would a good Christian do? I'm not but I'm just wondering now, what would a good Christian do? Where's that line of selfless living that I know that I should have? And what's the minimum amount of shifts I could pick up or things that I could do in order to be considered a halfway selfless kind of person? 
Office environments tend to run this way as well. I want to be on a team that like helps other people out and, and sees them flourish and, and help them. And then, and then maybe along the way, they're going to they're gonna help me in exchange. And then it starts to go through your mind about like, what? well, I can't just spend all my time working for other people in the office. I got to get my own stuff done too. So what's the minimum amount of help I can offer the person in the next office, the next cubicle, the next job site over so that they will then help me when I need to get something done and I have a deadline rapidly approaching. In other words, where's the minimum of selfless living? Because I, I want to do just exactly that and cradle the line, straddle the line between selfless and selfish living. And this debate has been raging for so long and has been talked about in so many different ways that even over 2,000 years ago, somebody brought up this exact same question to Jesus himself and asked the question, in a sense, paraphrasing, where's the minimum of selfless living? What's the least that I can do and still be, like, good? Let's go to the story. It comes from Luke chapter 10. If you're new here, there's uh, Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and we give those away all the time. So if you don't have one at home, go ahead and take it with you. That's cool. Maybe you just like ours better. That's fine, too. You can look it up on your phone. Also, the words are going to be on the screen behind me. But Luke chapter 10, it starts us off, it starts us off this way. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law, so not think don't think like uh, you know, a lawyer, somebody who passed the bar exam or something, but, but think rather a religious expert, like somebody who's really, really known as being a, a holy kind of person, an expert in law, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's kind of an interesting question because first, remember, he stands up to test Jesus. In that day and age, they had kind of the opposite seating arrangement as we do today. Typically today, the teacher is the person at the front or the center of the room who's speaking, standing up, and the students are the people in front, kind of scattered around, sitting down. But in that day and age, it was opposite of that. The teacher would sit, and the students would all, would all stand and gather around the teacher. So when it says that, when, the, when Luke records that this expert in the law stands to test Jesus, it's, it's almost like this sense of humility that he brings because he's like assuming the posture of a student by standing. But we also know that it's kind of a false sense of humility because, well, he's standing in order to test Jesus. And, and so we, we get this picture of the, of the religious leader trying to like, you know, he's going to ask Jesus a series of leading questions that are eventually going to go to a place where he can like trick Jesus and, and like, like grab him, right? And like back him into a corner, you know, have him check the wrong box or something. And, and then everybody's going to know that, that like Jesus has been one-upped by, by this expert, quote unquote. And he's going to get all the fame and all the glory and all the and kind of the crowd around or maybe going to defect to this guy instead of the rabbi of Jesus. That's the plan. But the question that he asked is what do I have to do to inherit eternal life is such a good one because on one hand, he kind of knows. Everybody else around, everybody else around is like, hey man, if there's like one person here who probably already has eternal life, it's probably you. 
I mean, you're supposed to be an expert on this stuff. You're supposed to have all the answers. How did you like, not know this already? But what the guy was probably doing is asking Jesus to start talking about his favorite subject in the world, to start talking about Jesus' favorite subject in the world, eternal life, because Jesus was known as somebody who talked about eternal life. Shocking, I know. But, but like the guy was asking this about Jesus because he wanted to go into like Jesus' expert area and, and like verbally you know, beat him at his own game and to get even more fame and, and even more glory for himself. So he asked Jesus the question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And at this point, I just imagine there's like this awkward pause. Because we know that Jesus gets it. And maybe the rest of the crowd kind of starts to tune in too as the pause starts to prolong. And the answer, right, is, hey man, the same thing that you have to do <laughs> to inherit literally anything else. The only thing that you have to do to inherit something, really, is nothing. There's nothing that you can do to earn an inheritance. In fact, if there's like a line to take away from this message, if you take nothing else, I hope it's that simple line, is, is that you can't earn eternal life. You simply can't earn your inheritance. Inheritance is something that's given to you. Inheritance is earned by the very fact that you were born into a family or you were adopted into a family. You simply can't earn an inheritance. Okay, but you can try. And, and if I could, just, just preach to those of you who might be trying this morning. But because, because you can try to earn your way. You can try to earn the thing that's already yours. You can try to try to work hard and win the thing that you already have and tucked away in your pocket and safekeeping. You can try. And chances are that if you're somebody who's trying to earn that inheritance, who's trying to earn your place, chances are that you're tired. Chances are that you're exhausted. Chances are that you, you're, you're, you're done with constantly trying to measure up. And so I want to speak to you specifically, whoever it is, whoever you are that is trying to earn your inheritance, I want you to get up tomorrow morning and look at yourself in the mirror and to say that simple line, you can't earn your inheritance because Jesus Christ already earned it for you. And we become adopted daughters and sons into his family. You simply can't earn your inheritance. But Jesus, being the instructional rabbi that he is, he kind of goes with it, and he asks some follow-up questions. In verse 26, he says, <clears throat> well, what's, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And in verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That comes from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And, by the way, from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a fun response, mostly because... He not only brings up a conversation about Jesus' favorite subject, but when Jesus presses him on it and asks a follow-up question to it, the answer that he gives, love the Lord your God above everything, love your neighbor as yourself, that's Jesus' patented answer. Like, he had just said that to a crowd several chapters earlier in another, in another account. Like, he was known for responding with those two things, which is kind of a unique two things, because the story of the Bible, it goes Leviticus, then Deuteronomy, but, but Jesus, when he quotes them, he, like, switches them around, which is kind of interesting, and does the second one first, love God, then love your neighbor. That's how you know it was, like, Jesus' thing that the guy gave. 
So he's, we know that he's like zeroing in. He's like, this is going, this is going perfectly according to plan. He's like narrowing in on Jesus' own answer to drive him into this one singular corner where it says in verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. And this is where they're going to get into the real heated debate. Jesus replied, do this and you'll live. And presumably he stands up and starts to walk away. You see, Jesus is like, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to do this religious dance with you. You want to know, if you actually wanted to know, love God, love your neighbor. If you could do that, you're fine. And he gets up to leave. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. We can't leave it right there. I mean, I mean, I got to make a point yet. I got, I got things to say, but, but, but wait, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself and so he asked Jesus, <clears throat> and who is my neighbor? That's the point that he wanted to land. That's the thing he wanted to talk about. That's why he says he's justifying himself. Let me just ask, rhetorical question, no show of hands, but just in your own mind. Have you ever had a conversation that was entirely done out of a way to justify yourself? Maybe anything about vacuuming, right? <laughs> Where you do something or you say something simply to justify yourself. We can start to see this conversation between he and Jesus. It's starting to turn less and less about Jesus, and it's starting to curve more and more in on him, as now is, is really just all about himself. And he asked that question, who is my neighbor? Because he knows there's only two right answers. Well, there's only two possible answers. Fun thing about the Bible is that it's a historical document written in a day and age when other historical documents were being written. And so you can see all these other writings that the Jewish leaders, rabbis they were called, had where they discussed this exact question, who is my neighbor? Because, because the assumption is we know what it means to love God. We know what it means to love our neighbor. The only question really is who exactly is that? With the unspoken kind of implied assumption is that, listen, I can't help everybody. After all, there's so many people in the world. But, but, but if I just knew who counted, and then I could, I could love that person with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my, I could do that really, really well. And so he asks this question, who is my neighbor? With this understanding that Jesus has one of two responses. Either he's going to say, your neighbor is your fellow countryman. Your neighbor is your fellow Jew, an Israelite, somebody like you. Your neighbor is the person like you. There's lots of Bible verses in the Old Testament about that. The second one, the second option is people started reading these other Bible verses in the Old Testament. That was their Bible at the time. And they started picking up at, listen, I think, I think my neighbor is more than that. I think my neighbor is, is more than just my fellow countrymen. I think it's, I think it's what the Bible describes as, a, as the sojourner, the traveler, the foreign residing within your gates, right? right. So the Old Testament has this idea, if somebody is passing through, I mean, if there's an outer, out of towner, if there's somebody not like you who's staying in your city, then that person is also your neighbor and you ought to also love that person. So it's one of those two answers. And this guy has got a, presumably solid defense for the other person of those two answers and wanting to trick Jesus. Which box are you going to check, Jesus? And we're going to duke it out. We're going to have this fun religious conversation that everybody wants to be a part of about the other box. And I'm going to try to embarrass you and trap you in front of everybody. But Jesus doesn't check a box. <laughs> Instead, he tells a story. 
which is, I think, just so earth-shattering and mind-blowing. The story that he tells is so pointed. He tells a story, made-up story, called a parable. Parables, it didn't happen, but they kind of do happen, right? It's a made-up story that Jesus is going to tell in order to leverage home a singular main point to drive this thing home as clearly as he possibly can. And so he tells this story. He goes, <clears throat> well, Let's say a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho is north of Jerusalem, but elevation changed, very rocky, lots of places to hide, so they say it's going down. When, when he was attacked by robbers, so they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now that Jesus is making up this story called a parable for a point, so you have to assume that every word is hugely significant. I'm not going to go into every word for you, you're welcome, but I am going to mention that since he was attacked and left half dead, something probably happened along the way. Um, Typically in this day and age, in the Middle East, in that, in that area, that road is a notoriously dangerous road to go down with lots of rocky places for thieves and bandits to hide out. But typically people were not beat up. People weren't harmed in any way unless they, unless they re resisted the mugging, the robbery. Right? So there's an easy possibility to blame the victim here. It was like, what are you doing traveling that road alone? What, what, are, you, what are you doing resisting when somebody just give the Give the thieves what they want and be on your way. We, it, was it was probably late at night, too. I mean, was, you probably brought this on yourself. So we have to resist the temptation just to blame the guy in the story for getting mugged and getting hurt along the way. And just talk it in your minds that he was also naked, he was also stripped, and left half dead which is an interesting phrase. When the next line comes across, the first person comes along, it's a priest, verse 31, who happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, passed by on the other side. You see, when, when somebody in that time thinks about a priest, they don't think about somebody walking because priests worked in Jerusalem. They lived in Jericho. They frequented this road. They didn't walk, they rode Priests weren't just something that you decided to do. It was something you were born into do. And they were known as extremely affluent individuals. And so he's probably riding on an animal even more likely than that. He's riding behind an animal in a carriage of some kind. And so he passes by. He sees the person. Don't forget he's half dead unconscious. Don't forget he's stripped naked because his neighbor, the person he was bound by religious law to take care of, to love, to serve, to care for, was somebody who was either somebody traveling within the gates or simply maybe somebody who looked and acted like him was another Jewish person. But how would you tell? In the story that Jesus was telling, they took his clothes. Clothes were a huge indicator about what class you were from, where you lived. He was unconscious. He couldn't speak, which means that, that the priest didn't know, is he, is he speaking Greek? Is he speaking Latin? Maybe he's a Roman. Is he speaking Syrian? Is he speaking Egyptian? Is he speaking Phoenician? I mean, there's like, there's a dozen different languages in this area alone. How do I know if this is my neighbor or not? On top of that, since he's half dead, what if he's all the way dead? And the priest is thinking, right, what if this guy is totally dead and I get down and I come into contact with a dead body, I'm ceremonially unclean, I'm unfit, I've got to step away from my temple stuff for a week or more. In fact, my family has to step away from like the, the house that I live in and the food that we eat because all of it's paid for by temple offerings and by temple gifts. 
And in fact, if I touch this man and then he turns out later to die, that would make me ceremonially unclean and I'd have to burn my clothes. My clothes are very expensive. I'm a fancy religious person and there's a law, there's a rule, there's a commandment against, against destruction of valuable property and I'd have to destroy this valuable property. So I better not get off my ride to help this guy. And can that just sink in for a moment? Because I think that what that points to is that there is a way to elevate ceremony over God. That there is a way to elevate spirituality, however you understand it to yourself, over Jesus. In the words of the great philosopher Bono, <laughs> sometimes religion gets in the way of God. And like, if you, if you consider the possibility that, that like by going through religious routines, it can actually lead you away from God instead of towards him. If those routines, if those habits, whether it's good, good things like coming to church or praying or giving or reading the Bible, if those good things are the end of what you're about and there isn't anything that those things point to, then they could very well be leading you away from God instead of, instead of towards him, right? And Jesus came. Jesus came not to like do away with those things, but, but to direct them ultimately in the thing that they actually point towards, towards God. And so Jesus came to take religion and to say, it's, I am the, I'm the epitome of the fulfillment of all of those things. It is all fulfilled. It's done in me. And Jesus takes these things and, and, and points them towards himself as a way to say, there's nothing. There's nothing that the religion says about finding your way to God, about making your way to God, about doing this, that, or the other thing to get yourself to God. And Jesus is saying, you can't make your way to God because I have made my way to you. So don't let religion get in the way of God in your life. That's the priest's story. Now the Levite, he's in a bad place. He's the next guy that comes around. Verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw this guy, he also passes by. Whoa, whoa, don't touch him. Pass by on the other side. The Levite probably does that. Like I said, he's in a bad spot because he knows there's a priest that traveled up ahead. And a Levite is like the assistant to the priest. And so the Levite's like, well, I mean, the priest left the guy. I'm good. I'm not morally responsible for this dude. On top of that, the Levi is like, so like, what if I pick him up? What if I carry him into town? And then we show up and the priest is there. It's like, awkward, right? <laughs> so the Levi's like, no way, I'm out of this one. I'm morally absolved. I don't have to do anything. I can pass by on the other side. And then someone else. Now, before we go into it, at this point, the crowd is expecting a group of three because all the best things, right? They always come in threes. And every good story knows, every good preacher knows, good sermon has three points, right? It's just natural. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Stop, drop, and roll. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like whatever they are, good things come in three. But what everybody's expecting is like, oh, I see two points make a line. So yeah, like super religious person, like pretty religious person, Levite. It's gonna be like an average Joe. And the crowds gathered around, and Jesus is talking to the super religious guy, right? 
and everybody's gathered around, and the hero of the story is going to be the average Joe kind of person. And already, contextually, in Jesus' day, the crowd was shifting away from the religious authority, the, the people with all the answers. And so they couldn't wait for Jesus, the, the, the rabbi of the people, to like stick it to the religious like, expert, right? And he, Jesus was going to tell the story, but the hero of the story was going to be this average Joe kind of person. And like, that's the moral of the story is be like that guy. And then everybody was going to look at Jesus and say, he's our hero. He's the man. I love him so much. I'm so glad we've got a average Joe kind of hero like Jesus. Except the next three words we can tell that Jesus didn't want to be a hero because he finishes it, not with an average guy, not with a religious guy, but these three words, verse 33, but a Samaritan. Oh, Jesus, you had him eating out of the palm of your hand. Why would you ruin a great story by bringing in, by bringing in a Samaritan? The Jewish people gathered around listening. They hated Samaritans. It goes back hundreds of years. It doesn't matter why. They just hated them. And the feeling was mutual. You know the Samaritans one time? They, they, they snuck into the Jewish temple and they buried human remains. They buried bones in the temple just to defile the entire thing so that they would have to hire outsiders, Gentiles, to clean the whole thing up. Meanwhile, meanwhile the temple um, practices are totally shut down. Like, come on. They hated each other. You know the Jews had a way of praying, of concluding their prayers? Like, like typically today, it might be something like, in Jesus' name, Amen. And it has like that rhythm to it. In Jesus' name, amen. They finish their prayers as a popular way of saying, oh Lord, and when you bring the dead back to life and in the resurrection on the last day, please forget the Samaritans. Amen. Like what? I mean, it was just like this normal accepted thing. We just loathe them so much. Jesus, Jesus, a Samaritan you may as well have said a terrorist came along. Jesus, a Samaritan? You may have just said Darth Vader came along and is going to help this guy. Jesus, a Samaritan? You may have said a Republican or a Democrat came along. Some of you would rather have Darth Vader, but that's okay. Came along and helped this guy. Like, Jesus, a Samaritan? Like, you've got to be kidding me. And Jesus finishes the story, and let's finish it out together. He says... But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, he pouring on oil and wine as a disinfectant. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you. I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. 36, finish it off. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, it was the, I suppose it was the, he couldn't even say it. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I want to make a note on that innkeeper in just a minute, but just to, just to observe something when Jesus finishes it off with go and, go and do, go and do likewise. 
You see what Jesus had just done in the story. We came into this thing, the expert in the law, Larry, came into this thing asking, where's that line of what's the minimum that I can do about, well, who's, who's the least in my neighbor that I have to take care of and forget about everybody else? What is the least that I can do in order to live what's considered a selfless life? And Jesus comes at this thing, comes at this question and says, forget about asking the question what the least that you can do is and ask how the best you can help might be. Jesus comes into this thing and says, stop asking what the minimum is and start asking what the maximum, what the best, what the most impact, how you can best care for your neighbor, whoever that might be. And it might be somebody that you don't really like or it might be somebody you really love. It doesn't make a difference. Don't ask what the minimum is. Ask what the maximum is. And Jesus comes into this thing, right? with this question, flipping it around, what's the maximum? And, and I just think about all the different times that people came to Jesus with the questions that we still ask today, and Jesus flips it around and says, forget about the minimum, ask about the maximum. When they come up to Jesus and they ask Jesus, when is it okay? Like, when's the littlest thing? When's it okay for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus asked him, and I think if we'd ask him today, he looks at it and goes, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? When's the least possibility that you could divorce your wife and still be like, okay. Let me ask you a question. What's the maximum that you could possibly do to love your wife or your husband along the way? There's, there's, like, there's so many debates that, that rage in the public sphere, even in churches, when we ask these questions where we just want to know, Jesus, what's the minimum that I can do and still be like, good? Jesus, is there a scenario? And if so, what's the scenario in which, in which a woman could take the life of her unborn baby? Jesus, when is, where is that line? What's the minimum that we can do? And Jesus is like, no, stop asking that question. That's not the question Christians ought to ask. The question that Christians ought to ask is how best can we serve? How best can we care for? How best can we love a woman who's thinking about taking the life of her unborn baby? What's the most that we could possibly do and forget about the minimum? Jesus, I have a business question for you. I'm selling my business or selling my house. And there's things that I can do to tweak things or hide things from the auditors or for the inspectors. Like, what's the minimum that I have to disclose in good conscience? And Jesus is saying, forget about asking what the minimum is. What's the maximum that you could do in order to love, in order to care for, in order to serve your neighbor, whoever it might become, whoever your neighbor might come along the way. Go and do, go and do, go and do. You see, for everybody else in that story, the priest, the Levite, and me, many of you, when we pass by that guy lying in there, the only thing that we see is an interruption to our schedule. But the, the Samaritan passes by is the only one who doesn't see him as an interruption. But the Samaritan passes by and sees an invitation not to love a neighbor, but as loving a neighbor, reflecting the love of God. Because they aren't mutually exclusive for that guy, for that Samaritan. For that Samaritan, you love your neighbor as an expression of loving the Lord your God. And Jesus says, go and do, go and do, go and do. But get, get this, 
Jesus is the only one who truly went and did. Coming back to the Samaritan and the innkeeper, guys, I read this earlier this week, not my idea, so don't give me credit, but like, listen, it preached to me earlier this week when I came across it. You know, there weren't any inns in the middle of nowhere. As a person reading this story, you have to assume that the Samaritan brought him up, a Jewish person, and brought him and brought him into the city, into Jericho, an extremely religious city, an extremely Jewish city. He brings the man exactly into harm's way for himself. Why would he do that? Why would he carry the man in risking his own life? He's, he's riding along with a half-dead Jew on his donkey walking behind. You know how that looks to the outside world. They're going to kill him. And on top of that, he brings them to an innkeeper. We think an inn, the Marriott, somebody with a graduate degree in hotel management or hospitality. No, no, no. Innkeepers had a shady reputation. If somebody couldn't pay their tab, they would take them into slavery and sell them off. That's who an innkeeper does. The Samaritan not only pays for a week's worth of recovery under this inn, but he pledges his life to come back and to settle the debt, whatever it may have been. We hear Jesus resounding in the story of saying, go and do likewise. But then as the story starts to unfold and as it starts to speak into people's hearts, into our lives today, we start to realize that Jesus isn't just telling us to go and do. Jesus is also telling us that he went and did that he's the Samaritan, that he's the unlovable kind of Samaritan that like, like picks, picks his enemy up, each one of us, carries us to the end and pledges his own life to come back for us so that those initial acts wouldn't have been done in vain. As we take communion today, and as we see that loaf being torn in front of us, I want you to imagine the Samaritan pledging his life, Jesus Christ pledging his life as a down payment to win ours. You can stay seated. Let's pray together, go into communion. Jesus Christ, our Lord, we see you as the fulfillment of so much of this. God, you have given us such a high command that we cannot even imagine, can't even imagine living up to it. There's so many conversations and debates publicly and privately, Lord, where we aspire to do the very, very minimum. And here, Lord, you're showing us what the maximum of a, of a selfless life looks like on our behalf. God, we celebrate you winning us over, your enemies, into your love and into your family. God, make that real in front of us and in front of our minds this week and help us see you in this incredible act of communion. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to celebrate communion and our servers are going to pass uh, the bread and the juice along the rows in front of you. There's a gluten-free option available if you'd prefer that. Um, as you take the bread, as you take the cup, uh, feel free to eat and drink uh, as as you feel comfortable, as the Spirit leads. If this is your first time at Encounter, if this is your first time to church in general, consider this an invitation. Consider this an invitation to come to his table, 
to be picked up by Jesus, by that Samaritan, and, and brought into safety. Consider this as your act of saying, yes, God, I do believe. I believe that I need to turn away from stuff in my life, sin in my life, and I need to turn toward you. Help me today. Nourish me at this table. And the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body given for you. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and drinking it, he said, this cup is the blood of my new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again, the gifts of God for the people of God.